0: One, and welcome back to Operation History, a podcast where history is more than what you remember. Tonight the digital table is filled with some old friends and some new friends. Uh so joining us is Maria from her little hiatus. Hello. Of course, we've got David.
1: Good evening and happy Thursday, everybody.
0: And I hope through process of elimination, you know that this is me, Lauren. Um this episode is super exciting. By the time you listen to this, we will be celebrating the 250th anniversary of the Boston Tea Party. So that is what we're going to be talking today. But oh, don't worry. It's not just us hammering on. We have a very special guest. Uh, Dr. Benjamin Carp, is here to talk to us. Hello.
2: Hey, thank you, Lauren, Maria, David. Uh, great talking to all of you.
0: Yeah, so we'll give you a chance to plug all of the things. Um, I'm sure people know you on Twitter, but we'll give you some time to plug. Uh, But let's get started. So let's talk a little bit about the Boston Tea Party. Um, As of right now, it is almost 250 years away. We are two days short. But yeah, so you are, you are our expert here. So I'll, Turn the mic over to you, and tell us a little bit about the Boston Tea Party. What happened?
2: Sure. Um, uh, well, so the the tea that uh, is initially imposed by par- the tax on tea is initially imposed by Parliament under the Revenue Act of 1767, what you might remember as the Townsend Duties, right? And then Parliament, you know, the Americans get mad, and Parliament repeals most of the duties, but they leave the tax on tea. And so the colonists, for years, had been like, "We won't import any British tea." They still drank tea; they just tended to drink smuggled tea. Although New York and Philadelphia were better about this, they got their legal tea imports down to about zero. Uh, but the Bostonians were punks a little bit and were still uh, importing some legal tea. Anyway, so then the Tea Act, then Parliament passes the Tea Act in 1773, and that actually doesn't impose any new taxes. Uh, in fact, it gives tax breaks to the East India Company in a way that was going to make tea cheaper for the American colonists. And so some of the Sons of Liberty, like Samuel Adams, were like, uh oh, this is just going to be a way to tempt Americans into paying a tax for which they haven't given their consent because the tax from back in 1767 was still in place. So there are ships headed to Charleston, South Carolina, to New York City, to Philadelphia. Four ships are headed to Boston. Three of them make it. The other one wrecks on the back of Cape Cod. Um, And so these three ships arrive in uh, in Boston in November and, and December of 1773, and the Bostonians have to decide what to do about them. They could allow the tea to land, but then the New Yorkers and Philadelphians will be like, what the heck? We're supposed to be boycotting. We can't believe you allowed the tea to land. This is a disaster. Now the tea is going to be sold and Americans will have conceded this principle. Uh, And also the Americans were really annoyed about the fact that Parliament was setting up a monopoly company to have special advantages to trade to the American colonies. The Americans are like, we're merchants, we make money from trade. If Parliament can set up one monopoly company here, what's to prevent them from setting up monopolies on other commodities, right? We'll all be thrown out of work. So the taxes, the monopoly, peer pressure from New York and Philadelphia, these are all concerns that the Bostonians have. So they don't want to land the tea. And so they think, well, maybe if we could talk the ship owners into turning around, uh, or, and the governor would be willing to look the other way. Maybe these three ships can just go back to London with their dutiable goods aboard. Uh, unfortunately, that's illegal. The ship owners w- would be liable to have their ships seized by the Royal Navy or customs officers. And so uh, the ship owners are like, I can't do that. And the governor's like, no, I'm not looking the other way. You know, we're, we're supposed to be upholding the law here. I'm not in the business of looking the other way about this. So the Bostonians are like, hmm, we can't land the tea. We can't send it back. On December 17th, Uh, It'll be 20 days since the Dartmouth arrived in the harbor, after which point the Royal Navy or customs officials can seize the Dartmouth and everything aboard it. And then they will sell the tea at auction anyway. So we're really in a bind here. What are we going to do? And so somehow, right, you know, if you watch The Wire, you know, you don't take notes on a criminal conspiracy. So historians aren't exactly sure how this happened. But the Bostonians kind of say, all right, we're going to have to have a secret plan. If everything else doesn't work out to dump this tea into the harbor, we're going to pick. A handful of guys, uh, you know, ahead of time. And maybe we, we will have some of them like, you know, grab some apprentices on the day of. So I think there were probably a total of about 100 guys. And there were already been guys for weeks kind of uh, on the docks, making sure nobody went on board these ships and kind of guarding them to make sure no tea came off of the ships. But on December 16th, it's like, okay, I think maybe it was about 100 guys, although we don't really know for sure. Uh, there's this big meeting at the Old South Meeting House to where thousands of people are gathered to find out what's gonna be done about the tea. And then samuel adams is like all right we tried everything and there's nothing else we can do and then he and all the other leading sons of liberty stay behind at the front of the meeting to be like no no stay and listen to a couple of speeches but then a bunch of guys disguised as native americans um you know come in you know making war whoops right you know this kind of racist caricature kind of stuff uh and everybody says hurrah for griffin's wharf let's make a cup of tea for the fishes in boston harbor let's let's destroy the tea etc and so Hundreds of people go down to Griffin's Wharf following these these disguised men, uh, and uh, you know and the Royal Navy is in the harbor. British troops are on Castle Island. You know everybody's watching this this take place. These disguised men, and I think everybody knew who they were, right? Uh, but these disguised men board the ships. Uh, they, you know, use block and tackle Pass these, you know, crates of tea over, you know, they they get them out. of they, they hoist them out of the hold. They chop them up with axes and they dump the tea into the harbor. Forty six tons of it worth at the time. Ninety six hundred British pounds sterling. Uh, what I like to tell people is that a ton of tea was equivalent in value to Paul Revere's house, which you can still visit in the north end. So picture Paul Revere's house, the value of that, multiply it by forty six. That is the value of the private property from the East India Company that the Bostonians just destroyed. Uh, And then everybody's like, whoa, okay, we just did that. And they have to wait months to find out what the blowback of that is gonna be because it takes four to six weeks for word to get to parliament. And then parliament has to deliberate about what to do. And then it's gonna take another four to six weeks for the news to come back to the American colonies. And what is the news? The coercive acts, right? Punish the town of Boston, punish Massachusetts, uh, pass all these laws that make uh, people in the American colonies nervous. That's when the 13 colonies begin saying, all right, let's gather at a Continental Congress. Let's talk about what to do. Let's start drilling our militia companies. And then it all ends in shots fired at Lexington and Concord and Declaration of Independence and all of that stuff.
0: I always find it interesting if you want to talk a little bit more about Thomas Hutchinson and his kind of this poor guy um for people that don't know he's the guy in charge of massachusetts he's uh in boston at this point um he gets his house torn down by brick uh so you want to touch a little bit on what's going on with thomas hutchinson as someone who is in charge and kind of standing in the middle of these two well yeah kind of um standing in between these two sides yeah Yeah,
2: governor thomas hutchinson was not just some functionary that they had sent over from great britain he was descended from anne hutchinson right his ancestors had been in new england for as long as the adamses or anybody else uh and but he but by 1773 he is maybe the least popular person in massachusetts in a lot of ways uh the leading patriots just hate this guy because uh you know his uh, benjamin franklin gets a hold of some letters he had written. And he sends them to Thomas Cushing in the Massachusetts House of Representatives. And the the Massachusetts leaders kind of make the letters public. Uh, And, uh, and, you know, and that includes like a letter where Hutchinson's like, Parliament's really going to have to manage uh, uh, Boston with a firm hand even if it means curtailing English liberties <laughs> like you know so Hutchinson has really made himself uh, uh, pretty unpopular he's really just trying to do his duty but um, but he just gets enmeshed in in, in all this political stuff uh, uh, Bernard Balin uh, uh, of Harvard uh, the late scholar of Harvard University wrote a really sympathetic biography of him called The ordeal of Thomas Hutchinson. Uh, and he was over in his house, his country house in Milton uh, on December 16th. And Francis Roach, who represented the the family that owned the, the ship, the Dartmouth, he he goes seven miles to Milton and he says, Governor Hutchinson, can you get me out of this? And the governor's like, sorry, you know, there's there's nothing I can do. And so it's it's Roach walking back from uh, Governor Hutchinson's house and addressing the crowd at the Old South Meeting House that really uh, touches this off. Uh, and, and, and the other thing, you know, is that Hutchinson's, uh, 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 Parliament appoints four firms to be the consignees, the agents who are going to receive the tea. One of those firms is two of Hutchinson's sons, and the other of the firms, Richard Clark and sons, were relatives of the Hutchinsons by marriage. And so the Bostonians are like, okay, not, and, and then the other thing was, is that the tea, the revenue from the tea duty that was collected paid Hutchinson's salary. So this looks really bad, right? They already don't like the tax. They already don't like the monopoly. But now the money from the ta- the, the tea tax is going to pay Go- Governor Hutchinson. And Hutchinson's sons are going to have this special opportunity to enjoy the profits of this monopoly arrangement. And so the, the people of Massachusetts are just really outraged. They already had all these other grievances against Hutchinson uh and Hutchinson at this point had already applied to Parliament and been like hey can I um, take a break from being Governor and uh, come visit England and explain myself and all this stuff and he was really just waiting for the weather to get better to leave uh you know and and after this I mean he has uh, no more authority left and so he's replaced by Thomas Gage, which is why Gage is the guy uh, who's there when uh when Lexington and Concord happens in 1775.
3: Yeah, Hutchinson kind of gets this like traitor status, like you said, because he was he was from a family that had been entrenched in Massachusetts and New England culture. So when all of these dots are connected that he's, you know, he's going to be benefiting from this financially, he goes from, you know, just public official to traitor, corrupt public official. Yeah, poor guy.
2: (laughs) I mean, I think it's good to have sympathy for the loyalists, right? Because I think the way that we're educated as, you know, as K to 12 students, it's like, yeah, I would have been a patriot. Heck yeah. You know, but then, you know, you look at what happens to some of these guys and it's like, well, maybe be, we ought to be a little bit more even handed in our sympathies, even if we would have politically agreed with what the Sons of Liberty were trying to do, because the Sons of Liberty could use some pretty brutal tactics uh, towards loyalists. I even, I read a, a letter by George Washington once where he hears about a loyalist having committed suicide after the British... Um, had evacuated Boston and he's like yeah we could use more of that you know so I mean you know that's that's Washington right and so yeah the Sons of Liberty could be pretty cruel towards those loyalists
1: one of my questions which is how should us teachers really approach the Boston Tea Party and colonial events you know the curriculum says approach it from this sort of light but that's not always true so what should be the proper way of approaching it
2: Uh, I mean, I think the most interesting question to ask is, if there were a Boston Tea Party nowadays, would people support it? Because the Boston Tea Party was important to the origins of our country, of course we think, oh yeah, that's a good idea. It enshrines our tradition of protest, our tradition of nonviolent protest, even though there's tons of violence surrounding the Boston Tea Party, even though uh, not many people were seriously hurt at the Boston Tea Party. So I think playing with that idea of whether, you know, of law and order versus civil disobedience, right? Like uh, having students play with that. The other thing is that, uh, you know, there's all this great work by John Bell, who runs the Boston 1775 blog uh, and wrote a great essay about this. Boys are involved, like young boys, teenagers are involved in a lot of the incidents in revolutionary Boston. And that includes the Boston Tea Party. So one of the little anecdotes about the Boston Tea Party that I always like to tell is when they're dumping the tea overboard, the tide was actually out. And so the, these, these piles of tea actually begin to clump above the waterline, And so the Bostonians look at this and they're like, yeah, that doesn't look good. So they, they pick a couple of ap- apprentices, so teenage boys, basically, and they say, you, you and you get in a boat, you know, uh, uh, get over there, grab some oars and whack at this pile so that the tea will dissolve and float uh, uh, into the harbor a little bit more. So there, uh, um, you know, so there were apprentices, teenagers, some of whom were still alive in the 1830s. You know, to be able to tell their stories, you know, some of them were applying for pensions from the U.S. government. So you can read you can read those accounts. In fact, I I was at the National Archives yesterday uh, and I got to see the the pension applications of Joshua Wyeth, Samuel Noel, uh, George Pillsbury, guys who were really young. Uh, at the time of the Boston Tea Party. And later on, they went on and had military service or privateering service. But they give these really interesting first person accounts of what had happened during the Boston Tea Party.
0: Oh, no, that was just my comment on I've never heard that story before. And it's so Boston. (laughs) I'd be like, well, this isn't working. So Oh, we,
3: we might as well segue into the Q&A because we're kind of weaving in questions yeah. to our discussion. So one of the questions that I had asked or I had written down, um, there's something that you had touched upon, is having sympathy for the loyalists. And I think when this topic is presented kind of in a more mainstream setting or in a K through 12 setting, the uh, the impression that everybody in Boston was a patriot or that loyalists and people who were pro-British were so few and far in between, and that's not really the case, And or is that the case? That's something we want to talk about.
2: I mean, relatively speaking, Boston was a pretty patriotic place, right? I mean, most Bostonians were Congregationalists of Indi- English descent. It was a relatively homogeneous town compared to Newport or New York City or Philadelphia. Uh, you know, and the Bostonians were eventually able to rally, you know, the, the other towns in the Massachusetts countryside through the committees of correspondence. And remember that the story that we're inheriting is the story that the Patriots first told about themselves, right? And they wanted to tell a story that kind of wrote out the loyalists and whitewashed the whole thing. So some of these uncomfortable incidents of violence, right, those were not the stories that we wanted to tell to school children in the 19th century. And over time those events just get encrusted and entrenched. Uh, and and there have been periods in American history where telling a more, you know, myth-busting version of the American Revolution was really uh, not considered the right thing to do in the 1920s. There were huge scandals. They were going to take Nathan Hale off the curriculum, and people were in uproar about this. Um, you know, so so again, there, there are always a lot of headwinds against people who are trying to you know, to bust some of these myths or give a more even-handed account. I mean, people take the American Revolution seriously because it's, you know, it's the wellspring from which the country comes, right? And it's so bound up with the words of the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution. And of course, there are more complicated and interesting things you can say about all of these aspects of the of the revolution, but um, you know, but you're but you're operating against this kind of more mainstream understanding. That's like, yeah, seventeen seventy six, it was all good.
0: I think that's a really good segue into kind of talking about the public memory of um, the Boston Tea Party. Which, of course, there is a lot happening, especially here in the Boston area. Um, with this anniversary coming up. uh, So how have you, through your research or just also just being around in Boston and talking to other people, how have you seen uh, the Boston Tea Party be memorialized? How has that changed since, you know, it happened?
2: Yeah, I mean, shortly after my book came out, the Boston Tea Party Ships and Museum reopened after the fire. Uh, and I, I worked with them for a little bit, and I know that they, uh, they have used my books. Right, they have been trying to track down more information about the participants, and they've they've made use of my list, and you know, and tried to see well, there are there other names that we could add to the list. Was Professor Carp right to strike some of these names from the list, uh, etc.? So that's you know, that's that's been really nice that there was this new museum, and so that museum they had all these new curators and stuff like that, and so they could come in right out of the gate with uh you know with a relatively recent interpretation of the tea party and there have been some great books that have come out since mine too uh to improve everybody's understanding i'd say over the past few months i have not been up to boston and so i you know my only experience of some of the commemoration has been through some zoom events that i participated in
3: i'm sure they're going to pull out all the stops
2: yeah, it, it sounds like it's going to be a big deal. I was talking to this guy, the editor of American Heritage Magazine, actually, I met him last night, and he's going to be one of the reenactors, but he's also simultaneously going to be reporting on it. Um, so anyway.
3: It's breaking the fourth wall. That's kind of cool. <laughs>
2: yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's an interesting guy. Like his father was the founder of National Geographic Magazine. He's like an, he's like an older guy, and he's been the editor of American Heritage Magazine for a long, long time, I think.
1: Oh, we we talked about it briefly about how the Boston Tea Party has been reinterpreted by different organizations throughout the years. And even you mentioned in your book that it has, even afterwards, it's been reinterpreted multiple times as the century goes on. What do you think the current reinterpretation is? Do you think it's positive or do you think it's just, it's as messy as it was originally?
2: It's still messy. I mean, I think most Americans have a positive outlook on the Boston Tea Party. But then if you think about the way people use the memory of the Boston Tea Party, it's clearly something we wouldn't actually agree about, right? The fact that people point to property destruction during some of the Black Lives Matter matter protests and say, and either criticize that or say, oh, no, protest involves property destruction. That's an American tradition. And, right, the fact that some of the guys could come back from January 6th. 2021 20, 20, and say, oh, I just felt like I participated in Boston Tea Party 2.0 and then be sent to jail. Right. Like, it, clearly, I don't think as Americans, we have a consensus about whether it's OK to destroy property and violate the law on behalf of a higher principle. Right. Like on the one hand, Martin Luther King is writing about the Boston Tea Party from the Birmingham jail. But grand wizards of the KKK are also saying, look at those tea par- Boston Tea Party guys. Didn't they have the Ku Klux spirit? So really, it can't be both. Uh, and so, uh, you know, and so this is what we have to decide as a country, right? When is it good and righteous to disobey the law because you are not being accorded equal equal civil rights? And when are you just being selfish and causing mayhem and, uh, you know, and disturbing the peace, right? Uh, you know, I think it's really hard to draw the line right we have a first amendment that's supposed to say okay there's freedom to assemble freedom to express your grievances in various ways but but destroying property is generally illegal and so uh you, you know so so this is really something that's difficult for us to work out and i, w- I would rather we debate it than cope the boston tea party in some sort of gauzy haze of of aren't we such a wonderful country right i'd rather we you know, uh, uh, get down in the dirt and actually debate, like, how much violence was there involved in the weeks leading up to the Boston Tea Party? What were the reactions of people who were not automatically aligned with the Sons of Liberty? You know, did people have any regrets about the fact that this was about to lead to an eight-year war where lots of people were going to die in prison ships and from disease and killed on battlefields? And all these other things families were going to be torn apart forever as a result of this war right so we might be grateful because we like being americans and you know and all of it was necessary for the founding of the united states maybe maybe it wouldn't have been so bad if like canada we had just left peacefully a number of years later right there were all there were other alternatives possible for the american colonies and so i think it's worth just Leaving the American Revolution is a bit more of an open question, right? And and think about when is it right to go that far? Uh, Were there people who disagreed about the the best tactics to take when complaining about what parliament was doing? There's all sorts of interesting questions I think that come up with the Boston Tea Party.
3: So segueing into that, uh, one of the questions, I was gonna ask you another question, but I'm gonna pick this question because of something you just said. when it comes to the motivations for the Tea Party, and like you said, if you kind of look and you look at everything that happened after, uh, do you think that the motives for people, or do we want to talk about the motives? Are they purely economic, or are there some other, other thought process go, thought processes going on?
2: Yeah, you're asking about the revolution generally and the origins of the American Revolution, touching on what's really a long-standing debate among historians. I mentioned Bernard Balin before, right? His classic work from the 1960s, The Ideological Origins of the American Revolution, looked at the pamphlets that many revolutionary authors had produced and said, oh, this is about ideology. This is about Republican ideals. This is about fears of corruption and uh, and 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 redefining liberty and and thinking about old english liberties in ways that had come up in the 1600s and in the earlier part of the 1700s right that, that that's the important thing to understand the ideology that had developed and the constitutional questions that they were wrestling with other historians have been a bit more cynical and been like hey, these were guys who just wanted to stream across the Appalachians so that they could see, d- seize more land from the Native Americans. And they wanted to be able to trade with whoever they wanted, including the French, without anybody telling them what to do. Uh, y- you know, And even though the Americans were taxed less than most British subjects, they're complaining about having to, to pay taxes uh, for which they hadn't given their consent, even though those taxes were being used to pay off the debt from the Seven Years' War, which the British Empire had fought on behalf of the American colonists. So so there, there's the materialist interpretation. There are ideological interpretations. There are people who have used a history of emotions approach. You know, there, there are many different ways into these questions and people are not simple. And mobilizing people on behalf of a political movement like this is not simple. You're talking about a coalition with many different people, with many different sets of interests and ideals. And so you know, this is what an academic is always gonna say, it's complicated, right? And so thinking about all of those different motivations and maybe looking at it locally or looking at it nationally or trying to look at it in more global terms or looking at it from an imperial perspective, these are all different ways into these questions, and all of them are, are, are interesting, uh, but it can be really difficult for a student of the revolution to be like, ah, you know. But again, you're you're a smart history thinker, and so you know that it's not simple, and so you want to keep reading more books until you figure out a way of thinking about this that makes sense. The flip side of the question, though, is that you might also be asking as a te- a teacher. Right. To kind of say, okay, I have this audience where this might be the first and only time they think about it. What's the best way to boil it down to its essentials and tell them what they really need to know? And I think at minimum, you can kind of say like, hey, there are these big ideas that are encapsulated in the Declaration of Independence. But of course, people also think about pocketbook issues. Right. And so at minimum, you can kind of talk about those two approaches. And they used to be pretty nasty fights uh, between the likes of Gary Nash and Gordon Wood, you know, from the 70s to the 90s. Right. That was always the debate of, like, a, you know, a more materialist approach or a, a, an approach that emphasized class conflict as opposed to um, a, a, an approach that emphasized the ideals that united Americans uh, in their in their break from Great Britain.
0: Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> As historians, we know that you kind of start with this one thread, and then next thing you know, here you are down the rabbit hole. Um, so, I guess going off of that, um, we'll, uh, we'll stick with Defiance of the Patriots just because Boston Tea Party. Um, so, what was your research process like going through this?
2: Sure, well, I had the advantage that there was already a really excellent book about the Boston Tea Party that had come out in the 1960s by Benjamin Woods Labrie. And he had kind of told what was, uh, I think of as like the imperial story and the national story, and he had done a lot of really great work with the Boston records, which a lot of historians have used the, the various kinds of Boston records. So I knew where to go for those. Uh, but he had also done really good work with uh, records at the, uh, the what's now the British National Archives, the Public Record Office in Kew. In, in uh, and he had looked at uh, at Indi- at East India Company records at the British Library. So he had already pulled together a lot of really good stuff. He had obviously used the newspapers, diaries, letters, uh, all this stuff. But there had been you know, it, it, particularly because of digitization, more stuff had been kicked up. Uh, and I was able to use some new sources. Uh, I was able to do a lot of genealogical digging about the men who claimed to have been part of the Boston Tea Party. I was able to use the correspondence of William Palfrey uh, at the Harvard Houghton Library in order to learn some new stuff. Uh, and I was also able to Make use of other secondary sources that had come out, you you know, work by Phil Deloria or Tim Breen, uh, you know, all sorts of really interesting stuff about tea consumption, the tea trade, the East India Company, uh, any number of other Indian disguises, any number of other topics. So my approach was to you know to to take a more local and more global approach and so that opened up different sets of documents to look at and and shaped the way that I was going to tell the story in a somewhat different way
3: yeah because you're so the book in my opinion is fantastic and you like i said you you take this big uh this like global approach and you talk about political economy you talk about material culture and yeah, it's a fantastic book. And it's interesting to hear about your research process and a lot of the stuff that you were able to dive into.
2: Yeah, thank you so much. I mean, I, I in my first book, Rebels Rising, the first chapter was about the Boston waterfront community and its resistance. So I had already been kind of looking into Boston and its waterfront communities and the connections among them and the way that they you know thought about the imperial crisis so uh, that was why when an editor approached a colleague of mine back at the university of edinburgh and was like when was the last time somebody wrote a book on the boston tea party and he wasn't interested but he kind of kicked it over to me because he knew i had been working on boston uh and so then i you know i began work with this editor uh and uh and then a a few years later the, the book was ready
3: it's fantastic um i know dave has a question and we keep we keep stealing the mic from him so i'll i'll pass the the mic back to Dave.
1: I was intrigued when you wrote about the controver- uh, the controversy over tea consumption itself. Where did you find that nugget of information? Because I never thought there was controversy over tea.
2: Oh, it, I mean, it comes up in all sorts of places. There had actually been a bunch of literature done by scholars of Great Britain on what were called the luxury debates. Right. Uh, uh, As uh, you know, we we take for granted, right, that there's lots of consumer choice and lots of different consumer goods that we all want to buy. But in the 18th century, that was a little bit more new. And everybody understood that you needed to buy essentials. You needed food, clothing and shelter. Uh, But the idea of having luxuries in the home, finer things uh, was a little bit more controversial. Of course, the aristocracy was going to indulge in luxury. But now that there were manufactured, manufactured goods and imported tea that were available even to middle class and working class people, People start to get nervous about this. What does it mean that everybody else can have these signifiers of uh, you know of, of of wealth? What you know is is that going to encourage bad spending habits among the poor? Uh, and then there are going to be these gendered questions about it as well, right? What does it mean that women are getting together at tea time in order to gossip with each other and create scandal and? overspend, you know, their husband's money, right? You know, that's something that a lot of male chauvinists start to get worried about. And so all of that was already in the air in Britain. And you definitely see reflections of it in the American colonies as well, especially when the American colonies hit upon this idea of, oh, let's boycott this stuff in order to put pressure on British merchants then the Americans start to make a virtue over deliberately abstaining from certain fancy things. So wearing homespun clothing as opposed to imported fabrics and abstaining from drinking tea and then drinking coffee or Labrador tea or some other kind of infusion instead, right? So Americans get to kind of show their virtue by deliberately putting luxury goods aside. So that story was a a little bit well-known, but obviously, right, whenever I came across evidence of that in the debates over tea in Massachusetts, right, I, I incorporated some of that information. But I wanted to give a sense that there had already been this long-running transatlantic debate over tea, whether it was good for you or not, whether it was good for society or not, whether it was good for women or not. Right? All of these debates had come up. And they're all kind of in the mix as Americans are protesting the Tea Act in 1773. Right? They'd been protesting tea ever since the tax had been put on it in 1767 right but then it becomes this kind of big uproar in 1773 uh and then you know throughout 1774 americans are supposedly still boycotting tea but ultimately there's going to be much bigger events happening uh once the 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 first continental congress gets going and uh and and americans begin buying gunpowder from abroad
3: tea gets replaced by gunpowder yeah bigger bigger fish to fry um, so I do have one more question and then this is mine. I think Dave still has a few more questions. So my last question, we kind of touched upon it, but we didn't. So I will circle back and bring it up again. Uh, Do we want to elaborate more or talk more about the role of ordinary people in the involvement of the tea party and kind of the theatrical nature of the event, the event and showmanship? Because again, especially when you think of, um, the way it's been memorialized and anytime it's shown on film or kind of taught, we always think of like the big wigs, like Sam Adams. And, you know, that we we, we tend to think of central figures, as opposed to like you were saying, a mob of just random Bostonians.
2: Not, I mean, not random necessarily, but <laughs> no, not, not random, ordinary but everyday,
3: um, everyday people, as opposed yeah. to, Individuals.
2: Right. You know, one of the historians that really inspired me was Alfred Young, who wrote this book, uh, The Shoemaker and the Tea Party, which focuses on the life of a very poor shoemaker uh, and very short, diminutive shoemaker named George Robert Twelves Hughes. And you can see his portrait actually at the old State House Museum, part of Revolutionary Spaces in Boston. Uh, And so Al Young had really, he, uh, Hughes gives a couple of as-told-to memoirs in the 1830s because he had been at the Boston Massacre. He had participated in the Bo- in the Boston Tea Party. Uh, he had um, precipitated the tar and feathering of John Malcolm, even though he didn't, didn't participate in that himself. Uh, and so, and then, right, like he's kind of rediscovered in the 1830s, and he's he was living in upstate New York, but they bring him back to Boston. And it's like, look at this old guy. He's seen it all. Like, you know, he's one of the last remaining guys from that lost generation. Um, you know, because all of the bigwigs, right, had been a bit older. So they, you know, they were mostly long dead by the 1830s. I mean, when the Boston Tea Party actually happens, really prominent Bostonians like Samuel Adams, John Hancock, uh, Thomas Young, they ostentatiously stay behind at the head of the meeting in the Old South Meeting House. And they say, no, no, stay, listen to speeches. But at that point, the disguised Native Americans had all like gone down to the to the wharves and and the crowd mostly follows them. Uh, But, um, you know, I did try and do a social profile of these hundred guys whose names are associated with the Boston Tea Party. Whether those stories are reliable is another question. But, you know, I really tried to say, okay, what were their occupations? What was their age? How many of them had been involved in politics before? And it's there's a range, right? Most of them are youngish, but there's some selection bias there, because if you were in your 40s, and then you died before the stories about the Tea Party start coming out in the 1830s. You're not likely to find a bunch of people who were in their 40s when they were in the, the 1773. So you get you you do have a lot of young men and even boys who were apprentices. Uh, a lot of them worked in crafts having to do with shipbuilding, caulkers, rope makers, you, you know, uh, things like that. Uh, there were a couple of Harvard graduates, uh, including uh, uh, Herman Melville's grandfather or father well, I can't believe I'm blanking on this um so there were a couple of harvard graduates uh you know but and and some merchants but mostly you're talking about middling and working class guys and the three guys who were the heads of the you know of each of the crews that boarded the ships i'm blanking on their names but they were you know they they were kind of politically co- middling figures but politically connected and one of the things that the boston tea party made me realize is that you know boston really just is never just about the big wigs right you have the big wigs who sign their names to all the big documents they're petitioning legislatures they're gathering in the continental congress right so they're famous they're giving big speeches so they're famous for all of those reasons but you also had a lot of middling uh, bostonians engaged in voluntary associations Of various kinds, the North End Caucus, the Boston Committee of Correspondence, the Freemasons, the Sons of Liberty, right? There were there are all these guys gathering in taverns, doing some of the actual work of being like, all right, if we're going to organize a boycott, if we're going to put pressure on this person, what do we do? Right? They, They are engaged in their own methods. They are signing their names to to circulating petitions. Also, right? They are putting pressure on their legislatures. There's stuff for middle class people to do, and then you have what working class Bostonians were doing, which often involved. Street theater, burning a boat on the common, right? You know, attacking somebody's house as an extreme form of it, or but maybe just parading in the streets and announcing like, hey, we stand with this cause too. Now, the thing is, we wanna say, oh, they all marched in lockstep together. The poor people were cooperating with the rich people, you know some historians like al young emphasize that's not always the case there is class conflict sometimes poorer people are like hold on right like rich people you're not looking out for our interests enough and we you know we have a different idea about the tactics that we ought to take so the challenge of political mobilization is to get these different groups working together and i think the boston tea party is a really interesting moment where you can see that taking place it is not clear that those working class people were only there because the, you know, the wealthier and more uh, and uh, the wealthy leaders had told them what to do. There's some evidence to suggest that some of these working class guys decided to get together on their own and say, OK, we're going to do something about this. And and maybe we'll ask the wealthy people whether there's some kind of plan in place. But there's a story where they, they ask a wealthy person and he's like, I, I can't, I, you know, you guys do what you're going to do. If you go you'll probably find friends and so the the working class people just basically voted themselves into a crew uh and and boarded these ships so you you see a really interesting class dynamic to boston and that was important to me because i don't think that we should only focus on you know the big six founding fathers and say that the revolution is just a product of their minds of franklin and jefferson and washington and madison right there's there's a rich cast of characters in in north america that involves Horror people, women, people of color—you know, Hessian soldiers during the war, British soldiers during the war, lo- loyalists. Right? There's there's this whole tapestry of perspectives that we can that we can incorporate. Lots of ethnic and religious minorities. Right? What's going on with all of these people? What perspective are they taking on this big event that unfolds from the 1760s into the 1780s? And the Constitution is not inevitable. It's the it's the result of this particular compromise of this is what the country is going to look like. and But but other alternatives were possible. And it's easier to see that, I think, if you dig a little bit more into what people were actually thinking and what new radical ideas were being tried in the 1760s and
3: 1770s. It's one of my favorite things about history is, you know, you can look at one perspective and think, you know, you've gotten the full picture, but when you start taking different approaches and looking at different classes of people or, you um, different uh, ethnicities, different, even different, different geographical regions of the country or a town, it gets so much more complex and so interesting. And I know um, it's funny you brought up Hughes, I remember I so it's been a while since I've been in a colonial America or any American history class but I always remember Hughes because of his name and my professor had told that story about how he said he was at all these events and weren't really sure if he was but I was I was happy to see his name and I know um in one of the chapters you talked about how revere Paul Revere was kind of that guy who was able to kind of transcend a lot of these cultural classes because he was a really social person. And a lot of the, I don't know if prepping and planning is the right word, but a lot of these social interactions were taking places in coffee houses, bars, social clubs. So he's, he's a figure who's able to kind of walk in a lot of different circles without causing a lot of attention to that factor.
2: Yeah. If you think about it, studying this stuff is great practice for teamwork or leadership, right? Because you can never be all things to all people. But what does it take to, you know, uh, work with people who are coming from different perspectives and, and accomplish some kind of larger goal? Sure. Uh, You know, I've got this new book called The Great New York Fire of 1776, a lost story of the of the American Revolution. And it's about the burning of New York City on September 21st, 1776, a few days after the Americans had evacuated New York City and the British had occupied it. Uh, And this was always treated by historians as a big mystery. But I think it's pretty clear that the Americans set New York City on fire themselves. And by the time I got to the end of writing that book, I realized, oh, this is a story that's actually a lot like the Boston Tea Party, right? Like destroying property on behalf of some greater cause. Uh, so it, for people who notice parallels, I'll be really interested to see what they have to say about that. But anyway, this was um, this was an incident that I was interested in since I was an undergraduate. So I've you know, I've been kind of looking at it on and off for you know more than 25 years. And so I was really pleased to be able to come out with a book about it. And I don't really know what I'm going to do next, but I uh, you know, I'm pleased to have some really fun books to offer about both. Boston and New York City, the two cities where I've done the bulk of my teaching as a as a, as a college professor.
0: So before we let you run, because I know you have things to do, um, where can the listeners find you? Where can they get more Ben Carpenter life?
2: Oh, sure. I mean, you know, as far as media, you can find me in all sorts of places. There are recorded talks on the C-SPAN website. There are Podcasts here and there. I've published some popular pieces, you know, and and, and pieces that are freely available to the public. Of course, I'd love it if people ordered the books either at their friendly local bookstore or via some large online uh, retailer. Uh, um, and I, I teach at Brooklyn College and at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Uh, I'm pleased to accept uh, graduate students to work with. And uh, and yeah, I've been, I've, I've given, uh, I'm giving a talk in Florida next month. I was, I was in D.C. this past week. I'll be in Boston soon. So I try and get around and share the message of history with, um, with wider audiences and don't just kind of selfishly limit it to my own wonderful students. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so you can, you can find me a lot of places, especially over this past year.
3: Thank you so much everyone for tuning into this episode. We appreciate all of our listeners and the support that we have received, and we appreciate and want to thank Dr. Ben Karp for coming on and talking about the tea party with us today. Please rate, review, download, and subscribe to the show wherever get, wherever you get your podcasts. It is a small and simple thing that you can do to help us out in a really big way. If you would like to interact with us, there are several ways that you can do so. You can reach us on Twitter or X, whatever you prefer to call it, Instagram mm-hmm. and Facebook at Operation Hist. Once again, the, the title is at Operation Hist. You can share us an email at operationhistorypodcast at gmail.com or you can view us on our website, operationhistorypodcast.wordpress.com. It is the place that we put all of our sources and show notes that we use from this episode to be transparent with you guys. Once again, thanks again for joining us and this is Operation History signing off. <laughs>